Well, First Timothy, Paul has been telling him that there was some bad teaching going on and that he needed to stop it and to promote very accurate, doctrinally correct teaching for the health of the church. Remember in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3 and 4, I urge you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Timothy wanted out of that place, but he had to stay there as pastor. It was God's will. He says to remain there in Ephesus that you may charge, command with all authority, some that teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables, endless genealogies, which cause disputes or divisions rather than godly edification, which is in faith. You see, incorrect doctrine brings disputes and divisions. Correct doctrine, look at 1 Timothy 1.5. Now the purpose of the commandment is, there it is, love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so good doctrine. The Lord did give us a commandment in the New Testament. Just one, to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's our commandment. He gave us the commandment. John talks about it as a commandment. First John talks about it as the commandment the Lord gave us. And of course, all 613 Old Testament laws would be unneeded if people were loving each other, right? If you love somebody, you're not going to be lying about them or stealing from them or committing adultery against them, et cetera, et cetera. If you love God, you're not going to be using his name in vain. So really, it does come down to that. And so he, the, the thing is, is that people often just want a positive environment only where there is no disputes. And... I don't think we're ever going to arrive at that on planet Earth. I think there are times and seasons where good doctrine is prevailing and people that are there are Bereans. They're studying the words and they're, they're of a good and noble heart and they're hearing it with their heart and obeying it from the heart. And soon as Satan sees that season happening in the church, what does he do? He starts attacking it. How does he attack it? He brings people into the midst of us that look like us, but they're not. And they start not with black and white difference in doctrine, but just enough to start guiding things in a way that takes us away from the truth. So understand, guys, that when you really look at the Bible, most of its teaching is negative. It's rebuking. It's correcting. Because we have the truth, and it doesn't take a lot to tell the truth. But now we've got to constantly be saying, but this is not true. It sounds like you're saying the same thing, but you're not saying the same thing. It sounds like what they're doing is correct, but it's not correct, and here's why. And so to every razor blade knife, right, you've got you to get it sharp on each side of the blade. And so the more you see 
inaccuracies or error closer to the truth, it actually makes it harder to see that it's not truth. And so at first it's like, okay, you got night and you got day. That's pretty easy. But then in time, Satan starts getting finer and finer, gets better and better at his lies. And he's fine if he can't take you off into a giant error. He'll just keep leading you with tiny little baby step errors as long as it takes. I was a chaplain in the prison for years in San Diego. And we regularly had to go to trainings on how not to get snookered by the inmates. And guys that are going to be in there for 15, 20 years or life, they literally will come into the chapel and they have a four or five year plan to get you. And the first two or three years is they are walking just perfectly getting you to 100% confidence. And then all they need you to do is bend a tiny bit the rules. And sure enough, all the training paid off. They, they did it. Oh man, it's Mother's Day. I didn't get the card mail out. My mother, I don't know if she's going to last another Mother's Day. Can you please mail that letter for me, Brian? I know it's against the rules, but you know, you've known me for years and and as soon as they do that, they get your fingerprint on that. And of course, you don't know what's in that letter. They got you. Small little thing. Just mail a letter to my mother's for Mother's Day. But now they got you. That's illegal. That's a crime. And then they start deviating it more and more until they need you to start bringing heroin to them. You know, um, and this is their plan. Satan, in the same way, he, he wants to come in. And so, in order for us to have truth, we've got to talk a lot about error. And so, when you're reading through the Bible, you'll find it talking a lot about things that are not true, that are lies, that are deception. They're, they're negative things. In order for us to walk in, yes, that razor blade fineness, of truth. And when we are walking in that truth, it produces a genuine love. The same love that's in God can be in us because we've been made in his nature. I, I, I love that story about Enoch. It's all a half a verse long. And Enoch walked with God and he was not. He just walked in the truth and he just no longer had anything in common with this earth and just stepped right in to God's world and, uh, and began to abide with the Lord in heaven. Pretty, pretty radical. Really excited to hear about that story. But I also think about Elijah who got caught up in that fiery chariot and disappeared into the heavens. Men that fought in their generation for the truth. And so there's tension in the body. Timothy, you need to make sure that the tension's relieviated with truth, not with compromise, not letting the tough, loudmouth 
very intellectual, persuasive, charismatic guys get their way. Yes, that will bring a temporary truth or temporary peace, but it will not bring the peace and not bring the good fruit. And so in the body of Christ, people are to be very different, very unique, very unique people. But however, we need to be one body. In Romans 12, 4 and 5, for we have many members, one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ, individually members, one or of another. So different groups, but yet there's this sense of unity in the one body. Timothy, you're a young pastor, but you've got to confront people. Some of them are older guys, older women. Some of them are guys your age and younger. Some of the gals are your age and younger. And you gotta do it differently because there's this respect that humans need to show humans with people that are older than them or of the same age. And so you got to correct the faults, but you need to do it in a way where you handle people in the church in a proper way. I love that old quote. To live above with the saints of love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints I know, that's another story. (laughs) So let's figure out how to live below with the saints we know. Verse 1, 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers. So older men should not be rebuked in the same way you would rebuke somebody closer to your age or younger. You need to have a respect for them as your elder. The older I get, the more I like these kind of verses. And uh, in Leviticus 19.32, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of the old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. So a gray-headed guy walks into the room, you stand up. Give him honor, you young people. Proverbs 16.31, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory. If it is found in the way of righteousness... It's interesting. You end up with dirty old men or righteous old men. Sweet, gentle, pure old men. And there is a glory with them, isn't there? There's a preciousness with those older pure men. And there's something exceedingly extra vile about the dirty old man. And so the guy that walks in righteousness, he, his old age is not a curse to him, but a glory to him. The word rebuke here is only used one time in the entire Bible, and it's here. It literally means to strike somebody. So it tells me two things. The kind of rebuking Timothy was having to do. I mean, some serious, in-your-face rebuking of some of these very dominant, charismatic guys pushing their doctrine. Now, we see Paul 
where he's going through and starting these churches. People never heard about Jesus. He presents Jesus. They get saved. He starts a church. And then there's a group of guys waiting till Paul leaves town. And these guys that were claiming to be Christians, Pharisees, ex-Pharisees, some of them, from Jerusalem, after Paul left town, would show up claiming to be from the apostles from Jerusalem and start telling them which of the Old Testament laws they still had to keep. In Galatians, he had persuaded Galatia was a whole area of churches, and the whole area of churches were being pressured to get circumcised and to keep certain of the Old Testament laws. And, and Paul said to those guys, I damn them to the lowest part of hell, anathema. He tells us in 1 Timothy 1 that he turned over Alexander and Hermenides over to Satan, that they would learn not to blaspheme. So I, I got a feeling if Paul was there, there would be some pretty heavy words like, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus and damn you to the arms of Satan and, and, uh, and I damn you to the lowest parts of hell if you don't stop infiltrating the church with those bad doctrines. And so Timothy also probably observed Paul and said there's times where you really do have to get rough. I, I remember some years ago, there's certain, certain times where Satan just literally pounds every, every area. And it was one Wednesday night and the sanctuary at that time seated about 400 and it was pretty full. But it was one of those nights where I get a call from the worship leader saying, can't make it. I've called everybody. Nobody can make it to lead worship tonight. And we were a large church. I had six, seven guys on staff at that time. The sound guys all call and say, I can't make it. I'm starting to call my leaders and pastors are out of town, out of sick. I'm literally trying to get my things ready with, for the sermon, picking up my guitar, turning it to go lead worship. And I, I get there, and the one guy that was going to do sound was his face in his hands out on the steps of the church going, I'm, there's no way I'm saved. And, and there was this guy, he looked sort of like a street person, but not. And he was talking to him severely, and I walk up, and, he, and he's like, oh, I'm prophet so-and-so good-looking young guy, and, and he had convinced this guy in 10 minutes that he wasn't even, and I'm like, I don't know what you're into. I'm exhausted. I'm leading worship. I'm teaching. All my leaders are gone. My pastors are gone. I, I literally don't have ushers. It was just one of those nights that I, I've experienced it a handful of times, and the young guy was there, and and he's like, well, I'm, I'm here to talk to the pastor. And I said, well, I'm the pastor and we'll talk afterwards, but not now. You're too young to be the pastor. I'm like, look, you're a prophet. You should know whether I'm telling you the truth or not. <laughs> but I am. If you'll sit on the back row and not say a word to anybody else, I will talk to you afterwards. Well, I started leading worship. Church was packed. The guy jumps up from the back row like I said, usually I'd have ushers watch such a person, comes and sits on the front row. 
And a couple of the young guys, fairly new Christians, were trying to usher and stuff. And they're looking at me going, I don't know what to do. So I said, hey, let's all get in groups and pray for a minute after half a song. Put the guitar down. I grab the guy by the collar and I start dragging him out of the church. And, uh, and I said, you step foot on our property again, I'm going to pound you. And so I'm just telling you right now, you can leave or I'll beat you up and throw you over the fence, but it's up to you. And the guy's like, and the other guys, you know, these new Christians are going, can you be saved and even say such things? But uh, I was going to have to strike this guy as I was outnumbered by demons and uh, it was a rough night, but we made it through it. But sometimes you're amazed what you have to do to defend the church. But an older guy, you're not going to strike at him. You're going to talk to him relationally as a dad. However, with all authority. Remember in Titus 2.15, speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So you still need to speak authoritative, but yet as if you were speaking to a father, not harshly. You still need to rebuke him. If an older guy needs to rebuke that, it doesn't mean you don't rebuke him. You still rebuke him, just not harshly, but as a father. And it says exhort him. We looked at this last week. It's a word that the root of it is to comfort. Uh, in the Old King James, it translates this to entreat. And, um, and so with all gentleness and kindness in a comforting, encouraging way, let him know that he's erring in his doctrine. And then the younger men as brothers. So um, in other words, you, you want this relational thing. You, you want to be, even though you have authority and you're a pastor, Timothy is an incredibly large church. Um, some even estimate the church of Ephesus got as big as 300,000 people. So um, it, it was incredibly large at this time. Great position of authority Timothy had. But yet, even then, to, to make these guys feel like the, a big brother was talking to them and encourage them in, in the right way. And in verse 2, he says, the older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. So um, it's, it's neat to have that relationship as a young guy with some of the older women who are taking care of you, you know. Um, I love that. You know, I'd get my favorite desserts and, and, uh, and it, was, it was neat. Yes, there's a, a few particular ladies that had that role in my life as a younger man and I sensed their prayers and their wisdom uh, on numbers of occasions. And so have, have that kind of relationship in the family. Older women as dad, young men your age or younger as brothers. Older women as moms. And then younger women as sisters in all purity. So don't be flirtatious or provocative. No double entendres in some kind of sexual innuendos, just keep things pure. And um, there's a power in that. You know, he has said that now to Timothy several times in this letter. And in the next book in 2 Timothy, he even gets more specific on saying in God's house, they're all in God's house, 
There's some vessels of honor and some of dishonor. They're still God's house. They're trash cans in God's house, but they're, they're, they're not a vase. They're a trash can. It's bitune. And you want to be a vessel of honor, sanctified, set apart for God's use. There's incredible power in the life of a believer who is walking in purity. There's incredible weakness. It can go down to the nth degree of weakness when there is impurity. Satan loves to find a Christian, especially a Christian leader, who is struggling with purity because he can really get his foot in the door. He can really crack the boat, if you would, to get it to sink. And so, you know, for me, it's just get your eyes on the Lord and just remember that joyful feeling of purity. That, that power there is in purity. The strength there is in impurity. And don't let that leave your mind. Don't let that feeling, you know. We're, the Bible assures us of our salvation, but often our heart condemns us. God's greater than our hearts. But nevertheless, we feel a lack of insurance. It's a feeling. It's not the truth. But nevertheless, it's nice to have the feelings of strength, isn't it? It's, it's, it's wonderful to have those feelings of assurance that, hey, Satan can try to find a crack uh, in the foundation, but he won't find one. He can try to find to see if some back door is open to, to get in, but everything's locked up. There, there's a strong feeling, isn't there? And just like you want to know, you can have that, assurance in your pastor and your spiritual leaders. Well, the spiritual leaders want to know that they have that also with the people. And so if there is any weakness in that area, get rid of it quickly because Satan can do untold damage in the area of impurity. But he has little else that he can really attack in a major way when there is purity. That's, that's a powerful statement to realize that when there is purity in the life of a believer, they are incredibly strong in the Lord and against demonic attack. Well, we start now in verse 3 talking about widows. It says, honor widows who are really widows indeed. So in this culture, they didn't have social programs at all. And so when there was a, a, a widow, a woman who was married, now unmarried, she, in, in most cultures, to be married, to be the second guy that marries her would, would rarely happen in most of these cultures. Because they, to marry a virgin was incredibly, incredibly important. Even in the, the most pagan of cultures, the women still had to prove their virginity. So to marry a, a, a woman who was not a virgin, especially one who had been married before, it might be your second or third wife if you're a rich guy, 
but she must be really super pretty. And so if a woman has been married for 20, 25 years, and now uh, she's not married and she's older, it's just there, there was no place in this society. I don't know if you have got to watch any of um, the documentaries about Iran and, and some of those Arab cultures. But a lot of these girls are forced to marry at 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. No joke. And their husbands could decide the time they're 14 after they've been married a couple of years to them. They don't want them anymore. And they just kick them on the streets. They go to the, the imam and they pay him some money. He gives them a piece of paper. He hands it to their wife saying they're divorced. And, and in Iran, you can't work, you can't have a job, you can't own anything. Your parents, your own family won't bring, take you back because you've shamed them. You're on the streets as a 14-year-old girl, and you may be pregnant. It doesn't matter. There is nothing you can do but be a prostitute. And these young girls have nowhere to turn. The, in, the, in the Muslim mindset, they are just like rats on the street with zero value. And it completely breaks my heart when I, I look at that and think about that. And when I'm thinking about the evils of Iran and they're saying and giving millions of dollars to terrorists, I'm thinking about those little tiny kids who are being abused by the other men in the community. Uh, a Muslim guy can go to the imam, give him money, and get a piece of paper that gives him permission to go have sex with other women for a day. Or you could buy a five-day one. It just costs more. And he's in the clear as long as he paid the imam money and has written permission to go hire a prostitute. He's okay. Well, the society they were in here wasn't much different. In the Jewish culture, women could not own anything. They could not have jobs. The only recourse they had when Israel was doing well and they had a temple is they could go live in the temple compound, which was huge. But they would just have their robe. They'd sleep on the ground at night. And, and during the day, they would have some kind of food for them. But the time of Christ, there were tens of thousands of widows just covering the temple compound. You guys might remember in Acts chapter 7, many of those widows became Christians. And then the Jewish social system there of taking care of them, so we're not giving them anything. They basically ask them, are you a believer in Jesus at all? If you are, get out of the line. We're not going to give you anything. So immediately the apostles had to take care of thousands of these widows. Many of them were non-Hebrew speaking. They were Hellenistic, which again made it very complicated to take care of them. And uh, there were some people like Barnabas that sold their businesses, gave all all their wealth to the apostles to feed these widows 
in those first days of Christianity. It was a huge, huge part of what the apostles were doing. You might remember in Acts 7, they finally said, look, we, can't, we don't have time to study and pray. We were having to spend so much time taking care of all these widows. And it, we know it's the Lord's heart that we would be servants and wash the feet of the least amongst us. But practically, we just don't have time. So they got seven men, Stephen and Philip, who became evangelists, uh, were one of those seven deacons to pass out to take care of the widows. In the Roman culture, women could own businesses. They could be business people and own houses and, and have jobs even. And most of everybody had jobs or slaves. You're a Roman or you're a slave. There wasn't much in between uh, being a Roman or a slave. But um, I think of in Acts 16, when Paul went over to Europe for the first time to Philippi area, in Acts 16, 14, and 15, he met a certain woman down by the river uh, on the Sabbath day, and her name was Lydia, and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, which was back in the middle of Asia Minor, where Paul tried to preach, and God said, no, go to Europe. He ends up speaking to a woman who was from the very area he was trying to preach, and God shut the door on it, uh, not too far from Ephesus. So she was a seller of pearl and Thyatira, not too far from Ephesus, who worshiped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she had her household were baptized, she begged them saying, if you judge me to be a faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. So Paul ended up staying in this wealthy woman's home. She obviously had homes in Europe as well as in Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. And so um, she ended up becoming a great supporter of Paul's. But there were definitely most of these cultures, if a woman was widowed, she didn't have kids, the only option for her was to still be a con woman or some kind of prostitute. That was it. And so he says to honor them. You'll find many times in the Bible when it's talking about honor, it's really talking about financially giving. But the word honor is used because you're to financially give, but in a dignified and respectful way, not a way that humiliates them. You know, I've seen that where people will give somebody money, but they make them feel guilty about it, or they make them feel like you owe me now because I'm giving you money. So they're helping them out, but they're humiliating them or making strings attached in the midst of it. And so even though they still have to take the money, there's a big yuck involved with it. And there's, in the same way, we'll, we find in the Old Testament the word honor in tithing and giving offerings. Some of those offerings were to the poor. But the Bible, instead of saying give financially, it says honor because again, it's not like I'm giving to God because I have to, you know. Instead of giving honor to God our Father, we're giving money to the Godfather, you know. God is like, yeah, you know, I want that money. And that's not the spirit. And so people are giving, but they're not giving in an honorable, dignified way that says, God, I realize you've given me everything I have, life, breath, health, the ability to, my brain to work, my ears to work, to, to survive, that it's you. 
And so, yes, I give you a tithe and above that of an offering. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 2, 30, God says, those who honor me, I will honor them. You can go back and look at that context and you'll find it's in the giving financially. Solomon talks about this in Proverbs 3. But just looking at a couple of verses there, in Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10, honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So if you honor God, God will honor you. And so when we're talking about honoring these widows, don't humiliate them. Don't make them feel like second-class citizens. Don't make them feel like freeloaders. Don't make them feel like I have no option but to take your handouts. Right? You, you want them to, to be supported financially, but you also want it to be in a dignified, respectful way in which they can still have self-esteem, right? So they, they can still feel special and not feel like a freeloader on the church. That's just the wrong spirit. So who are the widows to be taken care of and who are the widows not to be taken care of? It really comes down to that. Because some, some of the widows, they've got some growing to do before the church can really help them. And if the church helps them too soon, it can actually hurt them. Have you found that out? Financially, you try to help somebody sometimes and you actually do more damage. <laughs> you try to bless them and, and end up making a mess of things. You try to help them out financially and you end your relationship with that person over money. It, it can get pretty bad, can't it? And so again, just because you have money doesn't mean you're supposed to help somebody. And it, it, it's hard because as Christians, we just want to stop every pain. We want to stop every hurt. And, and if it's within our means to do it, we, we want to do it. But we're not always to do it. And so we looking at verse 4 through 7 here, he says, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now, she who is really a widow and left alone, trusts in God and continues supplication and prayers night and day, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. Wow. First of all, if we're going to, you know, look at a test <laughs> that needs to be passed, they, she cannot have children. The children need to step up. Now, if you're younger and you haven't figured it out, you never have enough money. Typically, you always need a little bit more. Whatever you're making, it's more. I, I can remember definite times when I had hourly jobs and I thought, man, if I just got paid 50 cents more an hour, I would be able to save up, buy a new car, whatever it is. And sure enough, you make that 50 cents more an hour and guess what? Even though I've got 
more is not enough. I need 50 cents more an hour. And so you really do realize God has to be a part of your finances to make it work. And if you haven't learned this in your pilgrimage as a Christian, you can't outgive God. But you can't undergive God. <laughs> and so he says, give a tithe, 10%. Which really, if God had said 30%, we wouldn't have questioned it. But yet, and our stinginess, it's like, I can give 7.5%, but 10% is just too much. And it's weird how we'll fickle over such things. Or you tithe for a year, and you go, wow, with that much money, I could be driving a brand new car as a car payment rather than tithing it to the church. And then above that of an offering. It's, the minimum is 10% as a tithe. And then above that, whatever, you know, it's in your heart. It can be one penny or it could be another 10% or more. And what you will discover in your pilgrimage is that when you include God in your finances, you start being able to do a whole lot more than you ever did without God. One of my leaders years ago was wrestling over that. Should I tithe? Should I not tithe? And he went through a whole year debating it and never did tithe. And at the very end of December, his van broke down. And he had just figured out if I had tithe, how much it would have been van that had broken down and it was almost the identical figure and the Lord spoke to him you know what you cannot tithe but you're also not going to have the tithe it's up to you you can trust me and not rob from me but this isn't Mike Micah if you will if you'll honor, or Malachi, if you'll honor the Lord with that tithe, he'll open up the windows of heaven and give you more blessings than you contain. But the Bible also makes it clear that if ill-gotten gain, God will just blow on it like dust and make it disappear. And I, and I do not say that to try to get more of you to give. Give or don't give. It's, it's the Lord's the provider here. I'm simply saying that this is a true truth. Honor God. Honor God with your tithes, with your offerings, for your own good. But really, I, I wish we didn't do it for that reason. I wish we just did it just to love the Lord, just to bless the Lord. God says 10%, you're going, God, I, I'm going to give more than that. I, that's That's foolish. I'm sorry to tell you, God, but 10% is ridiculously low. Forget that. We'll start with 25% and probably go up from there. That, that, you'll, you'll find that God will honor that art of giving. But if you're giving that 10% and you're gritting your teeth and squeaking it out and, and you know, you're writing that check and you've got a bad taste in your mouth, and just keep it. 
Because you're not giving it in an honorable way. You're not giving it in faith. You're not giving it with joy. God really doesn't want your money if it's not in joy. Keep it. If it's joyful in worshiping him, then give it. If it's in faith of going, God, this is nothing, give the Lord, press down, shaking together, running back over into the bosom. I just want enough money to bless more people. I want more money to be a greater blessing, not to get bigger and newer and better. I hope, I hope you cross that line soon in your pilgrimage and realize newer and bigger and better doesn't do much. Godliness with contentment. There you go. Who's the rich guy? Two million? Three million? Ten million? No, the rich guy is the guy that doesn't need any more. You see, there's a billionaire going, oh my God, what if I lose my billions? The guy who owns the Cowboys several years back, he was worth $2 billion. And she said, wow, you're one of the richest men in America. You just built this giant stadium. You got one of the best football teams. You, you know, you're making millions and millions a year. You're worth $2 billion. Back when $2 billion was you know, a lot. <laughs> and he, she says, what are your worries? He goes, weekly, several times a week, I will wake up in a sweat, in a nightmare, dreaming I lost everything and I was penniless. That's what he said. You'd think if you have a billion dollars, you wouldn't worry about money anymore. Your higher you go, the farther you can fall, right? Same with Oprah Winfrey. She was making 40 million a year, many years ago now. And she says, what's it like to be the highest paid woman in America, the top 10% of highest, uh, you know, she was the number one entertainer making money that year. And she says, it's not what I thought it was. She had a house in Beverly Hills there. The gardener suit her, the pool guy suit her, her maid suit her. Everybody suit her. And, and, and so she's like, I just can't own a house because I'm just in court all the time. So she sold the house. Every piece of property she owns, she sold. Every house she owns, she sold. And she rented a, a condo, rented it, leased it in downtown Chicago, 1,500 square feet. Very nicely done. And she hired a car service. She didn't have her own car because everybody would sue in her. And so she owned nothing so she wouldn't have to be in court all the time. Wow. You see... Aren't you glad you're not a billionaire? Aren't you sitting here going, man, thank goodness I'm not making 40 million a year. I can own a house or a condo or a car and not have to worry about getting attacked like that. Yes. And so I'll tell you what, you're never in a place going, oh, well, I can financially take care of my kids, my wife, and now I'm taking care of my mother-in-law. Now I'm taking care of my mother. Now I, you know, and I, somehow I'm supposed to come up with enough money to get my kids to college and take care of the last generation as well as the next generation. 
And you're going, I, I don't want to have to do this. But often, that's what God does indeed require of us. And, um, and he goes on to say here that those who trust in God, those widows who trust in God, give themselves to prayer and to a very holy life unto blamelessness, not the same word as the pastors or leaders should have a blameless life, that then they were to be provided for by the church. But if their kids at all could do it, they were to do it. Interesting in Ephesians 6, verse 2 and 3, that quoting out of Deuteronomy, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and you may have a long life on earth. It, long life doesn't mean many, many years. It means fullness. So God gives a promise out of all the 613 commandments. There's one of them with a promise. It's this one. To honor them, yes, with words and how you treat them, for sure. But ultimately, it would come down to honoring them financially, very possibly taking care of them financially. And so if she is living for pleasure, then don't, then don't do it. Because the agreement is, is that she's not wanting to get married. She's not wanting to have a relationship, a companionship like that. She's given herself to the church as an employee, full-time working, but the work is serving and praying. But those who are living for the pleasure, the church isn't to support them to live in pleasure. And it's, it's not talking about, um, you know, sinfully pleasure. It's just simply saying that this woman who's thinking about what she looks like and clothes and makeup and hairdos and, and she's still trying to look attractive and, you know, possibly there's another relationship in the future. If that's what's going on in their mind, they're not ready yet to be taken care of by the church. In verse 8, if anyone does not provide, this is a little interlude before we go back to talking about widows. If anyone is, does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. Wow. If a person can walk away and not do right, by their family. They are worse than a non-believer. They're not just an unbeliever. They're worse. They're the worst than any unbeliever is. So the minimum requirement of a Christian man is to stay with the family and to work providing for the family the best he can do. I would like to mention Jesus had a rebuke for the Pharisees. Do you remember why? Because the Pharisees came up with this loophole in the law where they called it Corban. That everything they owned, everything they had was given unto God because they were priests. So everything they touched was like the menorah in the temple. Only priests could be around it and touch it. So they did that with all their finances so they would not have to give any 
to their parents. They said, it's Corbin, so I can't give any to my mom. She's on her own. And that was one of the things that these religious men would do in their greed to not have to take care of their own parents. Well, in John 19, we see that Jesus on the cross made sure that his mom was still taken care of. He said to the apostle John in John 19, 25 to 27, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's the apostle John, standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. So Mary would die of old age in the Apostle John's home. So this is why we do pray hard for men who are out of work, that they would be able to get work so they can provide for their own household. It tells us what a younger woman is and an older woman. Do not let a woman under 60 years old, because she's very young, be taken into that number. And not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has received the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. So if she's under 60, she's still probably thinking about marriage and companionship. And so 60 is the minimum number where a woman would be considered somebody where the church might take care of them. And then um, that she's got this reputation of just having a heart for the church and being there early, staying late, just serving the body of Christ with good works, whatever the need is. She's there to meet that need. Well reported that she has raised up children. Now this is interesting because on one hand they can't have children or maybe their children died but they can't have children that can support them. But on the other hand, the requirement is they had to have raised up children, which I find interesting. Because remember in 1 Timothy 2, it said women are not to be leading the church. The men are. But women can pour themselves into children. And they're saved through childbearing, or I'd rather say child-raising. And then we find in 2 Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 5, and then in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, Timothy, the greatest thing you have going for you is your mother and grandmother's input into your life. Those women, they gave you this sincere faith that is gold. And then he, then he specifically says, what's going to save you right now in your ministry is what you learned as a child. And that Greek word is brephos for infants. It's not even for a child walking. What you learned in your infancy as an infant, those holy scriptures from why you were, before you were even crawling, um, all through your life is now what's going to do. And so God bless the women who have from babyhood, from babies and 
two-year-olds and five-year-olds and six-year-olds have raised up pastors and missionaries and Christian leaders and a whole generation of godly men. For me, I was raised in a home where my parents only practiced Christianity on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights and sometimes Sunday nights. But when we got home, Christianity wasn't there. And as a very young age, I began to question going, you know, there's so much peace at church and these people seem so godly. And, and some of them, they're my friends, I would get to go over to their house on Sunday afternoon. It was a farming community, so I was really going to another guy's farm. And I saw that the Christianity that they had at church was also in their home. One particular couple was Mr. and Mrs. Stoops. And she, would, she was amazing with flannel graphs. We were on the edge of our seats. But I can remember four-year-old and then getting to go into the five-year-old class with Mrs. Stoops. Her husband was a very quiet man, never said a word. Farmers are sort of that way. If you've been around any farmers, they spend many, many hours with nobody around, just out in the middle of their field. They don't, they don't talk too much. He didn't talk, but his wife, when she did talk, it was Bible stories. And I'll tell you what, man, I, I can remember on a Sunday night her doing those flannograph stories and just giving my heart completely to the Lord. And I, I know I wasn't quite yet five or maybe close to five years old. But it's amazing. It was so significant. And after that, her love for God, her love for the, her, it was just a real thing. And she imparted into me a real faith. My family never got better. Matter of fact, the time I was 12, they, they just quit trying to pretend to be Christians. And we lived a pretty wicked life and, uh, for many years. But um, I'll tell you what, that true Christianity penetrated my heart. And so ladies, to understand that for these people to be these deep Christians, it needs to start when they're very, very young. Chuck Smith says that his mother read the Bible to him while he was still in the womb. And he credited having many passages completely memorized that he'd never set out to memorize. And he believes that it was from the womb that those things entered his heart and his mind. And he knew the scriptures from that point. So in all honesty, the most important ministry in the church is the kids' ministry. So from God's point of view, I'm really babysitting you so the kids can grow in the Lord. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 35 to 37. Jesus sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
many other things in the gospel, Jesus said, making it pretty clear that the most important ministry was in the hearts of those kids, why they're so tender and so young, and to start it in their hearts so they grow up not knowing anything but being Christians. That those little guys would learn a sincere faith and never leave it in their entire lifetime. And so these women may not have children of their own, but they were to raise up children. David Guzik points out in his commentary that he believes that this could be referring to abandoned infants, which was a very common deal. And in, in most third world countries, it's still a very common practice today to have many, many infants um, left on doorsteps um, in the ancient world and, and in the third world countries today. And so they would take these infants and raise them up. And in verse 11 through 16, but refuse the younger widows for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry having condemnation because they uh, have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but also gossip, busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. So the, the, this widow is committing to a life of celibacy. And if, the, if she's too young, and maybe her husband died and she's grieving, saying, I never want to be married. I just want to serve the Lord. And, and, and that's it. That's, I never want anything to, to do with anything other than just serving the Lord. And so she would commit to, to staying single the rest of her life. But he's just saying, you know what? That, that needs to be very clearly proven. And if they're younger, it's healthier. It's probably better if they seek to get married. And the word wanton here, they grow wanton, is a word, it's about bridling a horse. And it's that rebellious horse not wanting to be bridled. And so they're not wanting to be a self-controlled person. They still want the attention of men. They still desire to have a family and a life. So don't bring them under condemnation, making a commitment that they can't keep. And when these younger women, they have all this extra energy and they start being gossips and they start being busybodies and, and you're putting them in a place where um, they're, they're saying outwardly, I'm not going to get married. I'm going to be committed to staying single and just serve the Lord. But at the same time, they're probably in their hearts wanting to seek out relationships and, uh, and so don't put them in that, that place. In Proverbs 16, 27, it says, an ungodly man digs up evil and it is on his lips like a burning fire. So not just women are gossips, but men also. Benjamin Franklin said, idle hands are the devil's workshop. I like this quote by Clark. It is no sin in any case to marry, bear children, take care of a family, but it is a sin in every case to be idle person, gatters about, tattlers, 
busybody, sifting out the details of other family secrets. And of course, it's very easier to do that today, isn't it? With all the social media and Facebook, it can become a, a, a gossip book. So the believing man or woman, if there is widows in your family, even a nephew or a cousin or an uncle, a distant relative, he says it's better to take on by faith and trust God to support and to take on these widows so the church doesn't have to take them on. Because if the church takes them on, it's really not simply supporting them. They're being seen as a church employee. They're giving themselves to serving. They're giving themselves dedicated to the Lord to not marry. So there's just so many strings attached that there would be very few women who really qualify to be widows indeed. So open your heart and support the widows so the church doesn't happen, have to. And of course, for such a person, there's great reward. In Deuteronomy 14, 29, he says, And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow who are at your gates, may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand, which you do. James says that, doesn't he? True religion is taking care of widows and orphans in need. Well, Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And uh, we know in our culture, this is not an issue. We're not in a third world country yet. California is getting there quickly. But uh, until that time, Lord, we just want to learn your heart and your mind of what is just, what's equitable. And we see here that people are to be denied financial help at times. It's actually not only okay, but it's the righteous thing to do to say, no, I'm not going to help you financially. And to be able to know when to do that and when not to do that. So Lord, we ask that you would take from these verses tonight and speak them into our hearts and our minds so we can know your heart and know justice and know equity and know fairness and know a heart that's not focused on our own little world and willing to open our hearts to include many other people into our world, making our whole life changed, having to trust you more to take care of all the food, all, all the needs for more people than we already are taking care of. And we do trust in that, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.